Chapter 4 Detention When I have protested, you passed legislation against me. When I have protested the legislation, you detained me. When I was in detention, you tortured me. When you could not change my views, you killed me. Chenuwami Farisani Detention without trial was introduced by the National Party in 1961, and before apartheid's end, more than 70,000 South Africans were to be detained. Increasingly, arbitrary anti-communist legislation culminated in the landmark 1967 Terrorism Act, which mandated indefinite detention without trial by any police officer at or above the rank of lieutenant colonel. All that was required was an intention to elicit information pertaining to offences under the Act. Yet the Act defined terrorism so broadly that the police had effective discretion to detain at will. In presenting the legislation, the Minister had persuaded Parliament that time limits would undermine the purposes of the Act. Terrorists would be indoctrinated to withstand interrogation for precisely the period legislated. For this reason, the Act allowed detention until detainees had provided satisfactory answers to whatever questions were asked of them. Detainees were entirely at the mercy of their captors. Detention was used to gather information for specific prosecutions, to collect general intelligence about opposition political movements, or to remove the leadership tier of anti-apartheid organizations. At its heart, it was a blunt instrument of psychological violence. Deaths in detention, rumors of security police torture, and fear of arbitrary arrest created a wider climate of fear that helped to paralyze political opposition. Detention also allowed police to spread malicious rumors about collaboration and the turning of prisoners during interrogation. For those who were detained, the experience was dominated by fear, confusion, and uncertainty. Indeed, uncertainty, according to former detainee Raymond Sutner, is the very essence of detention. One does not know what is going to happen. One knows it will be terrible, but there is great anxiety because of unawareness of what it entails. This uncertainty is not ended by the realization of the detainee's worst fears. Even when one had been tortured, one does not know when it is over, when the torturers will come back, and what they will do next time. As veteran Soweto activist Ellen Kuzwayo explained, this uncertainty also concerned what was happening to friends and especially family outside prison. During her five months of detention in 1977, she was plagued by worries about what might happen to her children if she were to lose her job and her house. What would become of her son? Cyril's Mpapuli mentor, Chenuwani Farisani, who was to suffer several periods of extended detention and torture, described the distorted sense of time in prison. Minutes in prison are long. Every hour has 360 minutes. Every day... 72 hours. Every week equals a month outside. As time dragged slowly by, detainees' experience of fear and uncertainty stretched them on a rack of torment. Long morning, long afternoon, long evening, long night, terrible darkness, screams, heavy footsteps in the passage, 
a round eye through the peephole in the cell door. When would they come for me? When would I join my screaming neighbors? What were they plotting against me? Would I get out alive? Or would I never get out? The present was a painful uncertainty, the future, total darkness, the past, an irretrievable reality. When Ramaphosa had been bundled into a cell at Makweng police station in Turflop, his closest friends were in a state of shock. It now fell to Ishmael Nkabela, Griffith Zabala, and Laban Mabasa to tell Cyril's parents that they had watched the detention of their 21-year-old son. They already lived in some fear of Sergeant Ramaphosa and hated to bring such news to Cyril's mother, who they rightly anticipated would be broken-hearted. Like all of those not detained, they felt the guilt of their continuing freedom and the helplessness of having watched the police take their friend away. It is almost as if we had handed him over, Griffith Zabala later recalled. Cyril's friends and family were uncertain how to respond because of the unexpected nature of the arrest and the turmoil that surrounded the national sweep of black consciousness activists. Experienced community members such as Chenuwani Farisani and Tom Mantata tried to counsel the family. Cyril's contemporaries organized a support committee to raise awareness and funds for their friend and for other detained students. Frank Shikani, Griffith Zabala and Ishmael Mkabela became the leaders of the Turflup Students' Legal Aid Fund, which mobilized resources and took responsibility for supporting both the detained students and their families. Like other friends of detainees, they enlisted the services of Shan Chetty, the brilliant attorney who was to be the key defense lawyer for many black consciousness detainees and who was later to be driven into exile and struck off the attorney's role by the Johannesburg Bar. Ramaphosa was a detainee at the margins of a major prosecution by the state of its perceived black consciousness enemies, an effort that was to turn from chaos to ultimate farce. The state eventually determined that it would prosecute just nine accused, the core of the national black consciousness movement, which did not include Cyril, in a trial that was to drag on from January 1975 to April 1976, but would not be fully closed until 1977. Charges were brought under the Terrorism Act, a notorious piece of legislation that placed the onus on the defense to demonstrate that there was no intention on the part of the defendant to commit a terrorist act. Prosecutors also applied the Suppression of Communism Act, legislation that threatened long periods of detention but proved unwieldy to apply, and other assorted offences such as conspiring to revolt, creating hatred, denigrating whites and organising subversive rallies. In the courtroom, the accused managed to turn proceedings into a circus that embarrassed the authorities. The criminals gave the impression of being relaxed and confident. They gave power salutes to the gallery and sang freedom songs. On one memorable occasion, they came to blows with police guards inside the courtroom. The weaknesses of the prosecution case were legion, but most damaging was a reliance on testimony that turned out not to be forthcoming. In the event, almost nobody testified against the nine and those who did give evidence were relatively junior figures who did not know enough to incriminate the accused. They also had to be briefed by the police to give their testimony any credibility. The fluid nature of black consciousness proved to be the state's undoing. 
many black consciousness activists avoided any form of direct organizational affiliation to reduce their vulnerability to banning. As Nefolo Hodwe put it, You don't become black consciousness by belonging to an organization. You become BC because of your response to your experiences. Displaying bravery and resilience in the face of isolation and torture, the trialists became heroes in the eyes of their followers. To some degree, this bolstered their morale. On the other hand, for the detainees who were not tried, the period of detention and its aftermath led to an unrelenting pain. Those who were simply detained, like Ramaphosa, became the victims of security police strategies to sow confusion and mistrust. Though the activists had been arrested all around the country, eventually they made their way into Pretoria prisons. Cyril was held in Pretoria Central Prison, what is today known as CMAX Prison, along with about 40 other prisoners, including Sat Scooper, Sasso Publicity Secretary, who'd been detained on the 25th of September at the Durban Frelimo rally, and who would be one of the black consciousness trialists. Cooper was in a neighboring block and did not have direct contact with Ramaphosa, but they were indirectly linked by the prisoners' rudimentary communication system. The prisoners would pass messages from cell to cell using code names and code words to keep information safe from informers, and they would sing songs to let one another know who had arrived and who had been taken away. In this way, Sats Cooper became aware that Ramaphosa, whom he knew a little about as a younger student activist from a different university, was in a different block of the same prison. The security police and warders knew there was communication and tried to make use of it to undermine the trust between prisoners. One tactic was to list detainees as potential state witnesses against the accused. Listed as a potential state witness, a prisoner could not be released on bail, and his detention was likely to drag on for further months. Rather than having the status of the accused in a major trial, he suffered the suspicion that he might be a potential state witness. A second effect of listing was to drive a wedge between a detainee's family, allies and friends and those of other detainees. Rumour mongers on the outside, particularly those already antagonistic towards a prisoner, would view his listing as a police witness as a sure sign that he had agreed to testify to save his own skin. Loathing of informers was everywhere. The phrase on everyone's lips was, Tongues talk! The paranoia that was to mark the internal struggle of the 1980s, where everyone was a potential spy subject to denunciation and even to the application of the necklace, was rearing its ugly head. To be charged in such circumstances was a relief rather than a burden. Even today, people do not inquire too deeply into what happened to their friends while they were in detention. Emotions ran so deep around issues of trust and treachery that these questions are almost too sensitive to be raised. At the time, these swirling rounds of rumor and counter-rumor left Cyril's closest friends unsure what to believe or whom to trust. They themselves were becoming victims in this world of double bluff and suspicion. Vendor speakers who disliked them used the opportunity of Cyril's detention to play the tribal card against them. Mabasa, Mkabela and Zabala were Tsonga speakers. Voices whispered to Cyril's family and neighbors. Why exactly then had their vendor-speaking friend been arrested while they remained free? Of course, even his three closest friends in the world 
could not have been entirely certain that Cyril would never testify. Such were the disorienting effects of torture and solitary confinement, and so unpredictable was the ability of any individual to resist being turned into an informer, that even they could only be sure at the eleventh hour that Cyril would not testify as a witness. What is more, the cloud of suspicion that an uncharged detainee like Ramaphosa could feel over his own head might easily bear down upon him more than the reality of his friend's beliefs would justify. Locked away and disoriented, a detainee might quickly come to believe that his friends doubted him when they were merely expressing realistic concerns about the unpredictable effects of detention. Fortunately, however, political activists in the 1970s learned very fast that the psychological mind games of this secret police must not be allowed to destroy the humanity of their victims. As Tom Mantata remembers, there was a growing feeling that suspicions of treachery and deceit fueled by the regime's agents, should be resisted. I never allowed myself unfounded suspicion that people were sellouts or what not. You're a sellout only if you testify. Sat Scooper confirms that Cyril's fellow detainees destined for trial were likewise sceptical of claims spread by the security police and prison authorities about supposed turncoats. Most of us in the leadership were fully aware of who was and who wasn't going to testify. For us, it was clear all along that Cyril was not going to testify. The purpose of listing someone as a potential state witness was to prevent any communication between that person and others. Listing was a strategy to help the state by keeping the lawyers representing different strategists from conferring with one another. Nevertheless, Cyril was the son of a policeman of 20 years standing and it was inevitable that there were accusations of preferential treatment and favoritism. The sergeant was a black policeman from a station in Soweto, to be sure, and a very different breed from the security police behind the black consciousness arrests. But which father would not try to help his son to survive imprisonment? Samuel must have tried to find a way to see to it that Cyril was spared some of the worst of the arbitrary violence and suffering that was inflicted upon many prisoners at the time. And surely, voices must inevitably have whispered, a policeman would work to get his son to testify in return for his own release. Given Cyril's own isolation, the debilitating effects of this sense of distrust must have been very hard to bear. He was held in solitary confinement, unlike his Robben Island contemporaries. I never benefited from sitting down and having political discourse with fellow detainees and comrades. It is something I still feel I regret deeply. Those who were in a group with other people were able to strengthen each other, to have discussion on a whole variety of things, and I didn't have that opportunity because I was on my own. Denied the educational compensations of the Robben Island experience, Ramaphosa suffered a isolation made still more complete by the fear that even his friends might no longer trust him. For the first three months of solitary confinement, Ramaphosa was allowed absolutely no access to reading material. He could hear the opening and closing of doors when others were released, but he was denied information on the status of his detention. Every day ended with shattered hopes of freedom. He retained his sanity by observing and naming the insects that crawled across the floor of his cell. When he was allowed a Bible at the end of three months, he fell upon it and read voraciously. Towards the end of his detention, when Cyril was transferred to the Silverton police station near Pretoria and away from the security police, 
it was possible for his family to visit him. Here Samuel may have been able to exert some influence over his fellow police officers. It was inevitable, of course, that the rumour mill would grind further. Would this son of a policeman, after all, turn state witness? Had he been turned? Cyril was not released until September 1975 after 11 months in solitary confinement. Psychologists today tell us that the way detention affects an individual varies very widely depending on the nature of the detention, the stressors to which a detainee is subjected, the support systems on which they could depend upon release, and the personal capacity of each individual to cope. For this reason, it is impossible to generalize about the effects of detention or to gain access into the consciousness of a particular detainee. Indeed, what has become clear two or three decades later is that most former detainees themselves do not have any real understanding of what their detention had done to them. Raymond Sutner, detained twice by the security police, has written that I was tortured more than 20 years ago. I've not spoken much about this episode in my life. I've written accounts of my abuse once or twice in what seems to some people to be a fairly detached style. I'm beginning to wonder now whether I've ever come to terms with this episode in my life. I wonder whether I have sufficiently worked it through and now understand and acknowledge the character of the violation and damage it has done. Sats Cooper, one of the black consciousness trialists, later a professional psychologist and long-standing president of the South African Psychological Association, emphasizes the deep-seated consequences of detention for the mental well-being of those who suffered it. It came home to me in 1995 during a celebration on Robben Island of an anniversary of Nelson Mandela's release. We'd been so joyous when he came out, but now there was a sense of complete bathos. We discovered that the majority of us, by far, perhaps two out of three, were unemployed. And we were still struggling with the consequences of our detention. Cooper lists the common problems suffered by former detainees, many of them charismatic and energetic leaders. Alcoholism, violent behavior, dysfunctional family lives, dysfunctional love lives, and just an inability to function in all kinds of situations. Cooper observes that there was almost no formal support provided for those who suffered in detention to help them rebuild their lives, and a culture that prevailed against admitting to the inner turmoil that would not let them rest. One activist who helped many families to deal with the effects of detention, Tom Mantata, confirms this depressing assessment. There was no typical reaction to detention. Some people's character changed and they became withdrawn. Others showed little sign of outward change and soldiered on. Still others had been turned and worked secretly as informers. All suffered from the suspicion, amongst others, that they might have considered in some way selling out their friends, and they in turn felt the pain of knowing that even those closest to them had suspected and distrusted them. One former detainee described the overall effects of his detention in this way. It is beyond comprehension how one feels when one is detained, more especially it is solitary confinement, because that is the one that anybody would dread, to feel alone, without anybody to talk to, without anything to do. There is the constant worry that you are liable to be taken further into the location any time. You're left with no peace of mind, even though you are alone. 
and you are liable to interrogation, and the interrogation may amount to your death. When Cyril emerged from detention towards the end of 1975, he appeared outwardly to be his old self. He typically downplayed the effects of his time inside and refused to talk frankly to his closest friends. Indeed, he was always to insist that detention had both negative and positive consequences. Yes, he had been in solitary confinement and so had not enjoyed the camaraderie that those held in common cells could expect. But even so, it had given him time to reflect on the limitations of his political understanding. I had suddenly realized, he recalled in 1985, that black consciousness was essentially a sectarian type of movement which tried to get black people to be on their own. He now claimed that he had come to recognize the significance of the Freedom Charter and even developed a devotion to Nelson Mandela. While this retrospective claim about the intellectual clarifying quality of prison life is greeted with skepticism by his friends, it is nevertheless in parts consistent with a later reflection that he came to non-racialism in detention through realizing the futility of it all, that the way we were trying to prosecute the struggle was essentially limited in terms of effect because we were a bunch of people, as our postal is today. The testimony to a sense of helplessness and futility is characteristic of the feelings of a former detainee. Ramaphosa points to an almost unconscious sense that we needed to get involved in the armed struggle and the Black People's Convention and SASO had not taken a decision to go that way. He remembers that one of the things that kept me longer in detention was when they raided my home. They found a diary and a notebook where I'd written things. Armed struggle, this is the option. We will make bombs and things like this. It was all very innocent. It was just one's thought processes that were operating. I hadn't made contact with the ANC then. What Cyril would not discuss was the wider implications of detention for his state of mind. Chenuwani Varisani was a source of support to the family during Cyril's detention. He noticed the change that had come over the young man. He was hurt, angry and bitter. He almost wished that he had been detained longer. He was frustrated that he had not been charged. As the son of a policeman, he felt that his integrity was open to question. He became withdrawn and less willing to spend time with his friends because he felt that everywhere people were making unspoken accusations against him. Sometimes when I would talk to him for a long time, the old Cyril would emerge. There would be that smile again. Farisani himself was to go through a brutal period of detention a year or so later. He explained the terrible loneliness and uncertainty of detention and its ability to lead one to question one's faith. I had to listen to screams like these for almost three months, it was the most terrifying period of my life. At times the screams came from outside, sometimes drowned out by running car engines or the barking of police dogs. But always, in a mysterious way, the human screams would filter through all the disguises and reach my human ear, breaking my human heart. Then I would fall on my knees and cry softly, at times silently, to the Lord, O oh God, you source of justice and love, opponent of oppression and exploitation, enemy of apartheid and torture. Where are you? Ramaphosa did tell some of his friends that his faith had been shaken by his experiences and that he'd felt that God had abandoned him. How could a loving and caring God make him go through such an experience as this? He claimed that he was enduring a crisis of faith because of his inability to reconcile his faith with the reality of his experiences in prison. 
and he spoke of the biblical experiences of Paul and Silas, who'd prayed to God and found the doors of their prison swung open. Why had it not been this way for him? Cyril's friends soon discovered that something had changed forever in their relationship with him. Cyril would not talk to them about detention, other than to say that the security establishment was very efficient in what it did, and to recount some of the mechanisms of interrogation, such as the recording of testimony, only to play back key passages again and again in the next period of interrogation. Then one day, as Cyril was walking with his old companions, he said, When I was in detention, I came to realize that friends are like tea bags. You boil the water, and you use them once. Decades later, the meaning of this remark continued to trouble Ishmael and Kabela. They had organized tirelessly to raise money for Cyril's legal representation, and they tried hard to give hope to his family. Did his remark mean that if you put your friends in a difficult situation, in hot water, they just lose all their value? Had Cyril himself become victim to the mistrust that marked those times? Did he feel that they had in some way sold him out? Psychologists today would view Ramaphosa's reaction as a typical after-effect of detention. Many of his contemporaries were disoriented in precisely the same way. Released detainees were susceptible to mood swings, fierce temper tantrums, aggressiveness and episodes of profound depression. They were often withdrawn and expressed the desire to be left alone. They suffered, moreover, from a sense of insecurity and from a lack of trust in people, even those who had been their friends. At that time, however, this was all a devastating change for Cyril's friends and they lacked the experience to place the psychological effects of his detention into proper perspective. Whatever the precise meaning of Cyril's words, it was clear that the old friendships, if not over, had in some sense been dramatically devalued. In the dark days of late 1975, Cyril applied to return to his studies at Turfloop, but he was not readmitted. Indeed, ultimately, none of the young ambassadors from Chiavelo was able to graduate from the University of the North. Laban Mabasa was also permanently excluded. Griffith Zabala was excluded in 1977, three weeks before he was due to graduate. Ishmael Makabela left the university in protest. Among their friends, Frank Shikani suffered a nervous breakdown in the middle of his final examinations as a result of the various pressures of the time. The university refused to make any allowances for this, and he was never to graduate, although he felt he'd earned a struggle degree. Royal Causa was sacked from his research position after lamenting, in his capacity as president of the University Psychological Society, the psychological problems caused by the migrant labor system. Cyril found himself severely upset by his exclusion. He had loved student politics, but now he was cut off from his constituency and from the ambitions he had nurtured. The university wouldn't take me back. I was in some sort of academic wilderness. He was determined that he would become a lawyer, nevertheless, and he decided to enroll with UNISA, the distance learning university. For now, however, he needed money and he needed work. By 1976, his situation had started to stabilize. He was attending meetings of the Black People's Convention in Soweto, the umbrella organization for black consciousness activity. His friend, Laban Mabasa, was a member of the Soweto Executive. Cyril and Laban were looking for work together and finally secured jobs as temporary teachers at Meadowlands High School. 
Yet, as this work was about to begin, a political storm was brewing in Soweto. The unemployed youngsters were to be right in the centre of it.